everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. This will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already and they were really special, fascinating, emotional, evidential. So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Today's guest is Mike Anthony. When Mike Anthony's father unexpectedly died, his family was left shocked and utterly devastated. However, when a phone call came out of the blue, delivering a complete stranger's message that Mike's dad had contacted her from the other side, it kicked off a chain of events that would entirely change Mike's family's perspective on life, death, and the transcendent nature of love. Mike Anthony is the author of Love, Dad, How My Dad Died, Then Told Me He Didn't. He also is in Netflix, Surviving Death. This episode was recorded in April 2023, and that's important because we touch upon some of the news events around the UFO sightings and the congressional reports. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi, everyone. Today I have Mike Anthony. He is author of Love Dad, How My Father Died and Told Me He Didn't. And we actually are friends and met at an event. So he's like my afterlife twin. So he can <laughs> tell you this, his story better than I can. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, like you, I was... Um kind of thrown into this world uh of of after afterlife uh, evidence i guess we could say evidence for 
the survival of consciousness uh, beyond the demise of the body after my dad died. Um, I uh, so my 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 day job right now is uh, I'm a, I'm an actor and a bartender, mostly a bartender. I work for Hamilton on Broadway. That's what I do, uh, you know, to to, to make money. Uh, and then in my spare time, I research evidence for life after death, uh, as well as uh, things like UFOs and and other quote unquote paranormal areas of in, of uh, of inquiry. So yeah, it's kind of a an odd uh, odd life that I that I lead, and. Yeah, so so that's uh, what I spend the bulk of my my time uh, when I'm not, you know, slinging drinks on Broadway. I spend the bulk of my time thinking about and researching evidence for survival of consciousness. I'm just going to put one side note in. Not only does Mike bartend for Hamilton, he also wrote another great book, not at all afterlife related, but still really good to read. What is it? Life at Hamilton? It's called Life at Hamilton. Yeah. And actually, there are a couple of stories in there. I, I've had some really interesting things happen uh, related to to signs that I now would consider to be signs for my dad at, at the theater. And so there are a couple of those stories in that book as well. I want to get into how you even started with all of this. So I think we had the same views at first. You studied physics in college, am I right? And what were your thoughts on an afterlife initially? Yeah, I uh, before I became an actor, I had I had gone to college to undergrad to be a science teacher. That was my intent. So I was a biology major for a couple of weeks. I was a physics major, uh, geology. I did. I was I was bouncing back and forth. Ended up getting a degree in none of them. I, I got my degree in, in acting instead. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I've I've always been fascinated by science, and you know, science as as you know, uh, at least I should say, I guess mainstream science is very clear on the question of life after death and and uh, survival of consciousness and that there is no survival of consciousness that consciousness is an epiphenomenon created by uh, activity in the brain and when the brain stops getting oxygen that's the end of consciousness i never fully believed that uh, as much as i have always loved science and been fascinated by the questions it could answer you know I, I tell the story a lot that like when i was a little kid my dad would take my sister and i to an airport that was near our house and we would watch these planes take off and i could not fathom how these enormous heavy things could be lifting off into the sky how in the world could they be staying up there and then when I got to um, middle school, I had this amazing teacher named Mr. Sawyer, uh, and we learned about Bernoulli's principle, if memory serves, that's what it was called, uh, which is what causes lifts, and this is how airplanes stay up. And I felt like Mr. Sawyer every day was giving me these keys to these different locked boxes of information and science was was the key that was unlocking these boxes and so i fell in love with science and the human ability to figure things out but at the same time i've also also always felt that there is more going on probably than meets the eye and that it's probable that there are things about the way the universe works that our scientific instruments are not yet anyway, sensitive enough to, to register. And this really hit home for me in um, Mr. Mead's class uh, in high school. Uh, he was a physics, it was a physics class. And that was where we learned about the double slit experiment, which I'm sure that you're, you're, a lot of your listeners are, are, are acquainted with. Explain it again, because I still have to reread it on a regular basis, even though I've probably read it 500 times. 
Oh, me too. Because it's so mind-blowing. So mind-blowing, it is. And, and I actually, I'll just tell everyone, like, full disclosure, can pretty open here. I sent my write-up in my book about explaining it to Mike to make sure I explained it well and got it accurate. So you're getting it explained to you by someone who really knows what they're talking about. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, it, it is so, it is mind blowing, and our our brains are not set up to really fathom this. So it's it's no wonder that we have such a hard time comprehending this. So the way that it was first explained to me by Mister Mead was, I remember learning that light is both a particle; it's a discrete particle in space and time, and it's a wave, a spread out area of energy. It's both of these things somehow at the same time. And I remember thinking, what? What do you mean it's both things at the same time? That's impossible. It cannot both be a discrete particle in space and time and also a spread out thing. But what the double slit experiment shows us is that it indeed behaves, is capable of behaving in both ways. So the double slit experiment in a very basic way if you if you have a sheet of paper with two slits in it and then you shine a flashlight through it it will form if you have an, another board behind that piece of paper on that board you'll get what's called an interference pattern uh, a light band dark band light band dark band so it's as though a, a wave um it, you can think of it as if you sent a wave of water to this to this um barrier and then two waves went through the two slits, they would interfere with each other on the other side of that slit. And you would get places where the peaks of the waves would hit and they would increase the height, right? And then you'd have places where they would cancel each other out. So this is what causes the the difference in the amplitude where you get the the peaks and the crests and they you get light bands and dark bands. So with the double slit where it gets really interesting is that it, you can set up particle detectors, photon detectors, right, on on these slits, and they will know whether or not a particle passed by them. If we do not turn the particle detector on, if we just shoot a photon or an electron, and we've now since done this with even larger particles and molecules even, which is totally mind-blowing, but if you send a photon through this detector and you and you do not have the photon detector on an interference pattern will show up, meaning we don't know which slit it went through. So it looks as though it went through both slits, as though it went through as a wave. Instead of a discrete particle, it went through as a wave that then basically interfered with itself behind the slits and caused this this interference pattern. If we turn on the photon detector, though, and now we know whether or not the particle went through the left slit or the right slit, Instead of an interference pattern showing up, a discrete particle will hit the detector on the screen. Okay, so it, the only thing that has that has changed in this experimental setup is in the second case we know whether or not it went through the left slit or the right slit. As soon as we register it consciously, it now shows up that the wave collapses and it shows up as a discrete particle. If we don't know which slit it went through, it shows up as an interference pattern, as though it had gone through both slits and inter a wave went through both slits and interfered with itself. So what, what it seems to indicate is that somehow consciousness 
is he involved in the equation? And that consciousness might be the thing that collapses a wave of possibility down into a concrete occurrence. That, that, that's the basic double slit experiment. Because it's so fascinating. We could do a whole episode on it. And I, it, it's so mind blowing. So we'll just end the conversation about it there because I can't stop thinking about it or talking about it. And we'll get into your story. So you, like me, lost your dad. And what was your very first experience of thinking? I know you said you kept an open mind that the, always that there might be an afterlife. You weren't set in it, but I'm assuming you just didn't spend much time thinking about it until your dad passed. So the important part about that double slit experiment, uh, learning about that for me was that that was where I realized that, okay, science does not have everything figured out, right? There's still, there are still questions here, uh, unresolved questions. It is not the key that is going to unlock every single question and certainly not the biggest ones. Namely, uh, what are we doing here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Uh, what happens after we die? You know, these are questions that are still um, unresolved uh, by science, and that science is not doesn't have the instrumentation in a lot of cases to to even get involved in. So that that you know helped me maintain this open mind. That though I believed very strongly in the scientific method and I loved it. I I knew that there were still these open questions. And for me, the question of life after death was one of those things that remained open. And from the time that I was young, as I said, I I always believed that there was something more uh, than the eyes and the ears and the the five senses could could detect. Uh, I, I believe there was every possibility that there was more going on than that. And that when we died, certainly we might we might go on in some way. And that vague notion that we might go on in some way was enough for to keep me happy. You know, I didn't sit around worrying a whole lot about death. I was like, yeah, we probably something happens. After my dad died, that vague notion was no longer nearly enough for me. And now suddenly every biology professor that I'd ever had uh, who told me that uh, consciousness, consciousness is created by the brain was, was resounding loudly in my head. Uh, and that was all I could think that, oh my God, what if that truly is the end of my father? And so when, when he died, my dad was an amazing man. We were incredibly close. Um, and he, he died very, uh, you know, he was only 60 and he was a very young 60. You know, we, we thought he was going to live a very long time and, and he, he, out of, he just dropped dead, you know, his heart just stopped and, uh, complete shock to all of us. So I was, I was in this place of utter despair and, uh, and in, a, in an existential just crisis, thinking, what, what's the point? What is the point of anything at all if someone, someone like my dad can just disappear? So, so that's where I was when he died. I relate to that part so well. And yeah, that stage, it's just, oof, it's so hard. And I know a lot of our listeners have been there, and that's why you guys are listening. So yeah, we've, we've been there. Yeah. It's a, it's a club that you, uh, everybody at some point ends up joining and it's, uh, it's certainly got to be the hardest part about being a human being, right. The, the facing the, the, the end of, uh, the quote unquote end of, uh, 
of lives of people we love. Uh, even now, you know, I'm 100% certain now, which we can get into why, but I'm now 100% certain that uh, my dad continues his existence in some way. But that's still, it, it's still very hard losing the physical aspect of someone, right? It's still the hardest, probably the hardest thing about being a person. I would say it's the hardest, um, at least for me, yeah. Now, what was the very first hint you got after losing your dad that, oh my God, what the fuck? Maybe something is going on. Yeah, these things that we, we now would call signs started happening very soon uh, afterwards. The The first big one that I will never forget was my sister and I were in my dad's house the next day, the day after he died. So we're very fresh, you know, and we're looking through his his things and just crying and, you know, just a mess. Um, and my dad was not an organized man. His desk was a mess. He had papers, handwritten notes all over the place, you know, and we were going through this these stacks of paper and, and found this little torn off piece of paper. It was like two inches by an inch. And on it, he'd written, believe a country song just those three words, believe a country song. Okay. Uh, so we continue on down through the pile and maybe another 10 inches lower in the pile, which probably related to another like seven years earlier or something. We found another note that said, believe, tell Jen. Jen is my sister's name. So we put together, this is something my dad would do all the time. He would hear like a song on the radio and then uh, make a note and then at, tell my sister, uh, you know, oh, you should, I heard this great song. You should listen to this song. Uh, my dad communicated to us through music for our whole lives. Like there was a, a time when we were young kids. He put us in the car. We went for a ride and he played a Carol King song. And he said, I want you to listen to the song. This is how I feel about you. And it was called Child of Mine. And so, you know, we were probably eight or nine years old when he did that. So he, he'd always used music to communicate with us. So we were like, oh, this must have been a song he'd heard on the radio that he meant to tell Jen about. And he never did. He never did tell us about it, uh, tell her about it. So a, a couple of days after that, my, my mom had decided that she wanted to have some music playing for the wake. So we were sitting there trying to put a playlist together on iTunes. And I said, oh, you know, Google Believe uh, in country music and see if we can find that song. So we played it. Turns out it's a, a song by a group called Brooks and Dunn, the country music band that none of us had ever heard before. It had been popular almost a decade earlier. And shockingly to me, it is about a guy who believes very strongly in life after death. That is the what the song is about. It's a guy who had lost his wife and his child and a young neighbor friend of his is asking him how he goes on with his life after having suffered such a terrible loss. And he tells this young neighbor boy, I'm able to go on because I have zero doubt that I'm going to see them again and that death is not the end. And it ends with the words, you can't tell me that it all ends in a slow ride in a hearse. So the following uh, after the wake, the, the next day, I'm taking that slow ride in a hearse. And, you know, and, and I should say, like, as we're listening to the song, my mom, my sister and I were sitting on my mom's couch. We're hearing these words for the very first time and, and we're all sobbing. And I'm thinking, I'm, like, how many songs, Liz, can you think of popular songs that are about death and life after death? It, right. It's like not. I, I can't think of a single one. Yeah. Yeah, it's super rare to hear, hear a song in any circumstance that's about like life after death. So in that circumstance, you can imagine the three of us thinking, oh my gosh, this is pretty amazing. What are the chances of this? Uh, and again, it wasn't like he had found this song. It would have been popular years earlier and it was way down in this pile. So 
you know, if he had if he had told Jen about that song all those years ago, we would have thought, oh, how sweet. Yeah, it's a nice song. But instead, finding it the way that we did, it's now become the most important song like in her life. So anyway, that would have been interesting enough. But what really is the icing on the cake for this particular sign that really made me think this cannot be simply coincidence uh, was that after the funeral, I was driving back to New York and for the first time I was alone. And you know how it is when you lose someone, especially, especially, you know, suddenly uh, it's a whirlwind of activity and you're plan, ma- you know, making plans for the services. And a lot of times y- y- we kind of put grief off a little bit because we're, in this sort of altered state of consciousness, possibly. So in this car ride down to New York from Connecticut, being alone for the first time, it really hit me for the first time that he was gone. I remember thinking, um, I had my phone on my seat and thinking, I'll never be able to pick that up and call him again. And that thought was like a dagger, you know, and I started sobbing. I'm on the, I'm on the highway and I'm sobbing. Now, from the time that there have been iPods and and uh, iPhones, I have always, as soon as I get into the car, plug the phone in and I play my own music, right? I never listen to the radio. I always listen to my own music. On this day, I didn't have the energy, didn't think to do it. And so that my phone was on my seat, I, I never plugged it in. And I hadn't been hearing anything, right? This whole time, I'm just in my own head. As I'm sobbing now on the highway, I'm on Interstate 95 in Connecticut, in traffic, sobbing. And I'm thinking I, I probably should pull over here because I'm, I'm now crying so hard. I, I start to hear music and I realize that my radio is on. And then I hear these words and I think it can't be, this can't be. And, and I go to turn up the volume and I'm actually afraid, Liz, to turn up the volume because if I am hearing what I think I'm hearing, I, I was worried that I would like lose control of the car. You know, that, that's my heart started to pound. I, I cannot tell you this. I'm getting chills right now thinking about this again. So I turn up the volume and I hear, you can't tell me that it all ends in a slow ride in a hearse. It's that song on my radio that I didn't remember even turning on that I never listened to. Somehow it had been tuned to a station that had that song on it in that moment. And then I call my sister and I'm screaming to her. You're like, listen to this, listen to this. And those tears of sorrow turned instantly into tears of like, of joy and awe. And I mean, because in that moment, you could not tell me that was not my dad somehow pulling cosmic strings, getting some radio DJ somewhere to play a song at a pretty, I don't know how it all works. I didn't care how it all worked. You couldn't tell me though, that that was not somehow my dad giving me this, this message that he had somehow made it somewhere else after his heart stopped beating and that he was trying to communicate with me. So that was the, the first sort of sign uh, that really made me open my eyes. This is a little speculative, but this is just where my mind goes. And we can't, we can't go too into this because, again, this will be like a two-hour conversation in and of itself. But it makes you wonder why he hadn't given it to Jen back then and how it was there, almost as if there's some other way we're doing things and we don't know why, and as if this had been planned for years, like some other entity or dis discarnate or non-local aspect of ourselves who knows a certain range of time more than we do in a certain range of the future knows well 
when I die at this date, I'm going to leave this here for Jen. And we're doing things that we consciously don't know, but there might be like a much more aware, non-local part of ourselves or, you know, a, a discarnate entity. You know, I, I, the word spirit guides, everyone uses it. It's too woo for me. I, I, can, I can't say it, but something that maybe a medium would say is a spirit guide that's like a non-local consciousness that's collaborating with us and maybe it was to comfort Jen but maybe the whole plan was for you this was what you were meant to be doing yeah you know just to go back to one more second to that that double slit experiment I we won't go into this because again this is very highly complicated stuff and I'm not smart enough to explain it but there is something called the delayed choice experiment which is uh, a variation on the double slit experiment and basically what it means is we've discovered that in, in essence, we can go back in time and alter the, the whether or not we know which slit the thing went through. And somehow, back in time, we're able to alter the outcome. So that is simply, again, uh, I highly recommend, there's a great book by Brian Greene called Fabric of the Cosmos. Uh, he's a brilliant uh, a string theorist, brilliant guy, and he's he's got a real knack for explaining this stuff to to lay people like myself who don't understand the, all of the math behind it and everything. Uh, although he has that in there too, if you're interested in that. So I highly recommend that book if you're interested in learning about uh, quantum quantum physics. So yeah, the possibility that that time is... In, somehow irrelevant from a different perspective or that something operates outside of time, non-locally, as it would be stated by a physicist. There is science to back that up, that that time is something that we don't have a real handle on. Uh, and of course, it's, it's not time, it's space-time, right? It's one thing, space and time are one thing. Uh, so again, we don't have to get further into that right now. But the, if, if you look into the world of quantum physics, where we are right now on the cutting edge of uh, understanding quantum physics, it's a it, it, it's it's a mystery, right? It's a mystery how all of this stuff works. So for anyone to say that anything is impossible when we don't even understand the foundations of how this universe works, and we don't, you know, we don't understand the foundations of the universe, right? We build our entire understanding of, of chemistry, for instance, on, on the idea of charge, right? Positive and negative charges, and which are, these are just words, right? But, but we know that some things like each other and, and attract each other, and some things don't like each other and they push apart. And as simple as that sounds, that's all, actually all we understand. <laughs> some things like to be together and some things don't. We've called it positive and negative charges, but those are just words. And what gives a thing the positive or the negative quote unquote charge, we have no idea. We have no idea what causes a charge to happen. So again, these are the foundations that we've used to build all of our equations on and all of our understandings on. So, you know, science works really well at a macro level, right? We can tell, we know exactly how long it, it takes a rocket to get from point A to point B. And, and, and it does a lot of amazing things. It's given us electricity and medical advancements and, 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 and we use it really well on this macro level, but at other level, at other levels, both, both very large and very small, the rules, the quote unquote rules seem to break down and we don't understand. We don't understand that the, the, the deepest foundations of what makes 
quote unquote reality. So for any scientist to say that life after death is impossible, to me, that's just a silly thing to say uh, when we do not fathom yet the rules. Agreed 100%. Now, let's get back to your story. So the next thing was somehow you're talking to psychic mediums. How did that even happen? Yeah, it's um that's also a long story and of course I describe it in detail in the book exactly what happened. So I won't I won't uh, go into to all of it here, but the bottom line was we got contacted by a medium. That was how it happened. Typically, in, in, in a typical case, if there is such a thing, uh, you know, grieving people seek out a medium and uh, hope to get messages from them. In our case, a medium got a message to us just days after the funeral, days. And at that point, all I had known about mediumship was uh, there was a show on television when I was in high school, high school called Crossing Over with uh, John Edward. John Edward or Edwards? One of them was a politician. One of them was a medium. Edward, and that's very fresh in my brain because Dr. Julie Beichel writes that in her new book that I just started reading where she said, it's John Edward, not John Edwards. Oh. Edwards is the politician. So that <laughs> okay, great. Is, I read that two nights ago. So that's in my brain. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Great. There's a nice little synchronicity. Oh, John Edward. So yeah, I'd watched his show in high school and I was interested, you know, I thought that's interesting, but you know, it's a television show. Who knows how produced these things are? And honestly, I thought there just cannot be a whole lot to this, right? Because it seemed like he was getting such amazingly accurate information all the time on a regular basis. And I thought, well, if there is someone who can do that repeatedly, then certainly a scientist by this point would have investigated this stuff and come to the conclusion for or against, right? If someone is claiming an ability such as that, that is replicable, you could easily test it. And because no science professor had ever said to me, oh, yes, yeah, so, you know, there's 46 chromosomes and and then, you know, the brain does this uh, when you get scared and there's the, you know, different parts of the nervous system. Oh, and then, then also, by the way, some brains seem to have the ability to communicate with dead people. Since no professor had ever said that to me, I assumed that it, there couldn't be much to what John Edward was doing. And that was all that I knew about mediumship. So we get contacted by this medium. Um, she tells us some things that are very difficult for me to explain. And um, to make a longer story short, after that, my sister contacted someone who is a professional medium, right? She would call herself a, that. That's what she does for a living. Angelina Diana, she is one of our Forever Family Foundation mediums. She is. And as and of course, I knew nothing about Forever Family at this point, but Angelina was the one who helped them develop the, uh, helped Bob and um, his wife. Fran. Develop the protocol for how they, Fran, yeah. Fran, who I'm sure is, is listening, developed the protocol. I get a lot of signs from Fran, so I think so. Do you? Oh, that's so great. Lots of messages and signs. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Bob's had some amazing ones too, as I'm sure sure you know. So yeah, Angelina helped Bob and Fran develop the the protocol they used to to test medium. So uh, she was she was their first um, certified medium. And uh, so anyway, I I knew none of that. I, my sister heard this woman on a radio, and that's how how, how she contacted her. So 
my sister was very nervous about the reading that she was going to be having. Uh, for, for people who go to see a medium for the first time, a lot of times it can be sort of overwhelming. You know, there's a lot going on and, and it can be, uh, pe- people are often nervous uh, for, for various reasons. And Jet, my sister was very nervous about it. So she'd hired Angelina to come to our house. She was going to come to our house and do a, a, a personal private reading for like seven, seven of us at my mom's house. The week before that, it turned out she was doing a, a large group reading at a theater that was going to have like 100 or 150 people. So Jen got tickets to that because she thought, oh, this will be a great way for me to just go and see how this all works before we have the private reading. So th- she thought this would make her less nervous to, to have a glimpse of it, N- never expecting that she would get a reading, right? So she, my brother-in-law and my mom sat in the back row at this theater, again, with about 100 and 150 seats. And Angelina comes out on stage and she does a little speech about how she works, um, a little, you know, something, a speech she gives every time she works. And then she says, okay, I'm ready to start. And she walks across the stage to the side of the theater that my sister is on. And she points to the back row and she says, I'm with you. Your dad is standing behind you in a Red Sox shirt. So she was with, she was pointed immediately to my sister. This is the very first thing she says, your dad is standing behind you in a Red Sox shirt. She didn't say, is your dad passed? Nothing like that. That was the first sentence she said. Now, my dad, not only was he a Red Sox fan, uh, we buried him in a Red Sox shirt. So that was pretty astounding. Now- The, la- the another important thing that happened that that day, I, after my dad died, Jen had been having a really hard time with his with his passing, of course, very in very deep despair. And I gave her a book called Emmanuel's Book, that a science teacher had given me years before. It's a it's a great book that I highly recommend. It's by a woman named Pat Rodegast who claims to channel a being named Emmanuel. And uh, that channeling, this is a whole nother subject that we don't have to get into right now. All I'll say is that I read the book and with an open mind and thought, well, I hope everything in this book is true. I hope it's true. It's this beautiful, poetic book that basically talks about the, the notion that we travel in soul groups and uh, we come back time and time again. And, and you know, life is a, the, the, that earth is a schoolroom in a sense. This is a notion that we've heard from a lot of different places. And, and anyway, uh, it's just expressed in this particularly in this particular book uh, in a really beautiful way. And it really brought me a lot of comfort throughout my life, this book. So I gave it to Jen and it brought her a lot of comfort. I gave it to her after my dad's passing. And she, the morning of that reading with Angelina at the theater, she was in her room and she said out loud, dad, I have to know that everything in this book is true. If you can somehow let me know that Emmanuel's book is telling me the truth, I'll be okay. I'll be able to get through this, but I've got to know that this book is genuine. So that night after Angelina says this thing about your dad's behind you wearing your Red Sox shirt. And then she said a bunch of other things too, that were all accurate. She finally then says, you know, he shows me that you're you're reading a book and she starts motioning with her, you know, miming, like flipping pages. And she says, it's almost like you're you're looking through a manual. Now, what she said was a manual, right? Not Emmanuel, but a manual. He shows me that you're looking through a book. It's like a manual. And Jen was like, oh, oh, my God, she just said Emmanuel. You know, like in her mind, it was like her. my dad had just gotten Angelina to say the word Emmanuel as a manual. Now, the subtitle of that book is 
It's Emmanuel's book, A Manual for Living Comfortably in the Cosmos. So A Manual is part of the title of the book, in fact. That blew Jen's mind, and it changed her life immediately. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. So that was where my idea for an experiment was born because I then sent to my, cause I was not there for that. I had been working that day. I was going to be at the reading the following week at my mom's house. So I was like, well, if this woman is actually able to hear my dad, if my sister could ask my dad for a specific message and get it, then I want that too, dad. It's not fair for you to give that to Jen and not me. And my dad in his life was very much about keeping everything equal for, for, for his kids. You know, everything was very much about being equal. So I decided to do my own experiment the following week when she was coming to do the private reading. And the night of the reading, I was standing in my dad's house, which uh, he lived in this kind of a back lot area, uh, very much secluded from from anything, just in the middle of trees. And all, all alone in his house, I said to him, I, I, w- I was trying to come up with like a code word, basically. And I was suddenly flooded with the memory that when I was a little kid, my dad, I would beg him at night to play with my hair to help me fall asleep at night, you know, and I'd be like, oh, dad, five more minutes, five more minutes. And the guy until his hand was a complete just ball of cramps would be would play with my hair to help me fall asleep. And for what I hadn't thought of that in years. And for whatever reason, I was suddenly flooded with that memory. And I said, "Okay, my hair. I need you tonight to get this woman to mention my hair. If she doesn't do that, I don't care what else she says. I'm not going to believe it. I need you to get this very specific message to me, right? Now, my hair, as you can see, it's just very average, normal hair. There's nothing about about it that a a stranger would come in and be like, oh, there's got to be a story about, you know, just super average hair. So she comes to the house and uh, I had scrubbed the house, by the way. I had like taken down pictures. Like I, I wanted it to be, uh, make sure there was nothing she could be getting information from. And I'm trying to figure out how she's doing this trick, right? Because according to science, the science that I'd been taught, she had to be doing a trick and I was going to get to the bottom of it. So she she starts and right away she's saying things that I cannot understand how she could know things that are not published anywhere on the internet uh, things that are very private and within ten minutes I would say I was convinced that something was happening that I couldn't understand and the reading lasted for about an hour an hour and a half and by the end of it we were all in tears we're all in tears saying telling her this is the most amazing night that we've ever had. Thank you so much. And and we're actually standing up to leave. And I had totally forgotten about my little experiment because 
the night had been so, so incredible. Everything she'd said was so incredible. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like frantically taking notes about every single thing she's saying. So I, any, I had just forgotten about my, my experiment. So she's getting ready to leave. And she was in the middle of a sentence, Liz. You know, we're, we're like saying our goodbyes, basically. And she stops in the middle of a sentence. And she looks directly at me. Again, there were seven of us there in a circle. She looks directly at me. And she says, your dad wants me to talk about your hair. And she did this little motion with her hand, almost like playing with my hair. And uh, I almost died on the spot. <laughs> like I really, I couldn't breathe. You know, I couldn't breathe. And my 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 mom, my mom and my sister are saying, "What? What's wrong?" Because I hadn't told anyone, no one. It was entirely just me and my dead father who knew that I'd asked for that. So once I was able to catch my breath, I I, I I told them what had happened and why it was such a big deal that Angelina had just said that. So. Uh, suffice to say, that moment was an inflection point in my life where I I thought it's very possible something is going on here uh, that science hasn't figured out yet. And then I just have to, I think we should just address this. There was stuff such as the Red Sox shirt. None of that were posted on the internet. And the reason I'm asking this, I mean, this is the stuff I thought back then, but also the whole recent case of Susan Jerbeck, who exposed a medium. What was it like Operation Peach Pit, I think? Yeah, pizza something or yeah, they did a, a ice cream something. If anyone hasn't read it, Susan Jerbeck, who runs a skeptical organization that exposes fraud, and I'm all for exposing fraud. And she has yet to come expose the mediums that I stand by. And basically, she had people sign up under fake names to go to one of their events and they link to it on their Facebook account. They started posting all this fake information about a deceased loved one on Facebook and all that came up during the reading. All that came up and and nothing that was not posted came up. So they she they basically caught this person red-handed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there I am not certainly not saying that there is not fraud in mediumship, right? I mean it's been exposed time and again. I just want to also add Angelina was saying stuff that was not posted anywhere, right? Absolutely, absolutely not. And 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 certainly my request to have my hair mentioned was certainly not posted anywhere or even spoken out loud to to anyone but my dead father in the middle of the woods. So, but this is where this becomes important, your your question, because my brain could not let that go, right? My brain, I would have these amazing things happen, like believe, hearing believe in the car. And and in the moment, I'm, th- I'm like, okay, I never have to hear another thing again. I'm on cloud nine. Life after death is real. I'm good. I don't have to know anything else. Then a half an hour later, my brain is going, well, what about this? You know, what about that? So- Later on that night, after the after the hair thing, which I'm 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 again, I feel like I'm float. You know, when you come in contact with something so extraordinary, it feels, you know, it's like an altered state of consciousness, right? You're you're kind of um, uh, you know, you're just coming into contact with something extraordinary, and it's uh, a particular feeling that I've had many many times now. But after that feeling wore off, I was thinking, as ridiculous as this sounds, I'm thinking, could it be, Liz? that Angelina has on her staff, maybe she has a staff, I don't know, and maybe one of the people on that staff is a retired like CIA agent with high-tech listening equipment, and he was posted in the woods outside of my father's house, and he heard me say to my dad, I need you to mention my hair, right? That's, that's a ludicrous notion. That's 
that's the stuff I thought too. And I still question that stuff. And even when I go and analyze that much, it still can't explain for the stuff that's come up in my readings and other people's readings. Yeah. So, but because of that little nagging thought that my brain would just not let me have this, that that, that was definitely my dad. Uh, about a year after that, I contacted Angelina and I basically said to her, <laughs> you know, I, I got to know if you're actually doing what you say you're doing, I would like to make a documentary where I film you doing readings for people that I bring to you so that I will know there is absolutely no way you could have done any research, right? And to my surprise, she immediately said, sure, I'll do that. And signed a release before I had filmed a single frame, which has always stuck with me. I, I, she signed over ownership of this footage before I had, before we'd even begun filming that, you know, that's how much she trusted her own ability. And, and she trusted me that I was not out to, you know, I was, I, I was out uh, in 100% in good faith. I just wanted to know the truth, you know? So I started doing readings with her on film where I knew there was no way she could have any, I, I often wouldn't tell anyone else on set who was coming in that day, right? Often I was the only person who knew who was about to walk through the door. And so time and again, I've now filmed her doing probably over 20 readings. I, I um, go through 10 of those readings in detail in the book. And time and again, I'm now watching her get information of the same sort of specificity that she'd given to me. And I'm watching her like change people's lives that I know she cannot have any information on unless she's done research on everyone on the planet. Because I, I took people from all walks of life, from all different geographical locations. You know, I could have chosen anyone on the planet. And even so, I then... And I just want to clarify, this was in your, a location you picked, so she couldn't have brought in facial recognition technology that would go through and do background checks. There was nowhere that could be, right? No, I did this at my mom's house. Uh, and I, I've actually done it now in multiple different locations, all of my own choosing, uh, just to be 100% sure about any of that, yes. Uh, so, so then, as as this is going on and she's still getting accurate information, I increased the sort of the controls on my little casual experiment. And, and so then I start thinking, well, you know, the brain has, uh, abilities that we don't understand, right? So, some brains are able to do things that are for most of us, we, we just couldn't fathom. For instance, I'm forgetting the name of the, um, uh, I'm not sure what to call it, but there's a, there's a, uh, syndrome. There's an, a situation where some brains, for instance, are able to remember every single moment of their lives, literally every single moment. So you could say to them, what was the weather like on April 17th at two o'clock? And they could say to you, do you mean April 17th at like 2.17 a.m. or p.m.? Like they literally remember every moment of their lives. And, you know, we don't, we don't understand how that works. So all of that is simply to say that we know that the brain is capable of extraordinary feats um, sometimes. So maybe Angelina's brain is set up in a way where she's able to pick up on people's facials express, facial expressions in a way that most of us can't understand. Maybe she's somehow getting information that way 
Uh, and maybe she doesn't even know she's doing it, right? Maybe, maybe for her, it really feels like communication from dead people. But actually, she's, you know, she knows what an eyebrow twitch means. Her brain somehow registers what an eyebrow twitch means. Anyway, so what I did was put up a barrier then between her and the people. So now she never saw them. I would have Angelina come in, sit her behind a barrier, and then I would bring in the sitter. And, and then she still was getting the same level of accurate information. So then I thought, okay, what if she's hearing something in their voices? Maybe her brain is somehow uh, picking up on auditory cues. So then by the final iteration of the experiment, I had the person behind a barrier and I had them not speaking. They were just answering yes or no by hitting a button and a little yes or no light was lighting up on Angelina's side of the barrier. So she wasn't seeing or hearing this. Uh, uh, on my website, mikeanthony.com, I have a, a video that shows a little bit of our experimental uh, setup if you just want to see what it, what it looked like. So, so yeah, by the end of it, she wasn't seeing or hearing. These people could have been, I, I told her nothing about them. She didn't know if they were a man, a woman, or anything in between. She knew nothing about their age, where their background, where they were from. She knew nothing about them. She was talking to a barrier and not hearing anything. And she was at least not with her ears in the way that we do, that the average person does. And she was still getting this information. So by the end of those those little casual experiments and and Dr. Be Julie Beichel, who you know well and I know well, uh, she always chastises me whenever I say, "Well, I did these experiments." She says, "You have to be very careful with the word experiment," and she's right. I, I'm not doing anywhere near the level of control. I can totally picture that. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Doctor, for people who don't know, Dr. Beichel does you know quintuple blind experiments in her in her research at the Winbridge Research Center, which which is you know obviously blows mine out of the water. So, in deference to Dr. Beichel, I'll, I'll be clear that I was doing casual uh, tests for my own self, not rigorous in the way that that she does them. But for for me, for all intents and purposes, and for everyone on that set. It seemed like we had things pretty tightly controlled and she was still getting this information, including what we would call sometimes dazzle shots, you know, in this line of research where she would say things that are just, it, it just seems impossible um, that she, she could not, she could not, like for instance, one of our sitters had a brother who died in an explosion in his car on the highway exploded and that's how he passed. And immediately she says... I'm smelling gasoline. And this was during the part of the experiment where she couldn't hear or see. This was a sitter who she didn't hear or see. So she says, I'm smelling gasoline. And then she says, oh, I have someone here who died in an explosion. Now that's, and that was the first thing she said. It's not like she took different shots in the dark. Like, do you have somebody who died of a, maybe a cardiovascular issue and that person hit no and like, oh, cancer maybe and no. And then was like, oh, actually I'm smelling gasoline. Wasn't an explosion. It was the first thing she said. Now that's an unusual way for a person to pass, right? Not, thankfully, not many people pass in explosions. So that's an example of a dazzle shot where right away, the first thing she says to a person who is hope, this is the person, this, this, Sitter had come to hear from, by the way, it was her brother. And immediately Angelina says, I'm smelling gasoline. I have someone here who died in an explosion. I mean, what are the odds? What for any statisticians out there, I would like to know what are the odds that that would be the first thing that you would say to somebody and have that be correct? I want to go back to talking about mediumship, but I also want to back up. Did you get? an amazing sign that was a butterfly from your dad. I remember reading about that. 
Yes, yes. So now the, the the butterfly thing is something that's very easy for skeptics to jump on, right? And, and I I understand this. Uh, right after my dad died, I, I started seeing, or I'll say, I started noticing butterflies in situations that felt profound. Now, uh, of course, what a skeptic will say is that I wasn't suddenly seeing butterflies; I was suddenly paying attention to the butterflies, and I understand that, right? However, so the first thing that happened was, um, so I'd driven back to New York and, and Believe was on the radio and I had that amazing experience. Uh, the day after that, I was scheduled to go back to work for the first time. And I was living in Queens at that point. And I was up on a subway platform ready to go into work and thinking, I'm not ready for this. You know, I, I was looking down at the ground trying to just not cry, <laughs> you know, and I work on Broadway, right? Which, um, you know, constantly interacting with people. And, and, um, I suddenly felt like, I don't know that I can do this today. I don't know if I can handle this yet. And as I'm looking at the ground and thinking, I'm going to turn around and go back home and tell them it's, it, it's too early. I'm not ready. Uh, down in the subway track, which is the only place I would have seen it because I'm looking at my feet, you know, I'm looking at the ground. I see this bright orange butterfly, monarch butterfly. I'm a born and bred New Yorker and I always am like looking at things. I'm a very visual person. I would notice a butterfly in the subway steps. I have never seen one in my entire life. And again, born and bred, I've been taking the subway. I mean, not alone, obviously with my parents, but since I was like five years old. Very rare. Like to see a butterfly in New York City, if you're not like up in Central Park, there's just not a lot of greenery in Midtown Manhattan uh, for butterflies to be alighting upon. So yeah, it's pretty rare, right? Uh, Just in general. But yeah, so this first one, I see it down on the track, bright orange, and it flies up. And it almost touches my nose. It's in my face. Like I can feel the wind from the flapping. And I'm like, it, it, it literally almost touches my nose. And then it flies up into the sky. And I was like, whoa. Now, that was interesting. A whole bunch of other butterfly things happened, right, that I won't get into. But um, a whole bunch, not only for me, but also for my mom, my sister, there were just a number of them that were were interesting. And they're mentioned in your book. They're mentioned in the book. Yes, I go into detail about what would happen there. So this last one, though, th- this this one was another life-changing moment. And the story is told, I, I'm, I took part in the Netflix series Surviving Death, which is on Netflix now. And in, um, I think it's the third or the fourth episode, we tell some of this, this story that I'm about to tell you. So I was doing these experiments with Angelina, and I'm getting this data that to me, tells me some, she's doing something real that would, that we haven't, she's getting information via some pathway science hasn't yet figured out. And, uh, I'm like, I'm blown away. And by now I'm really thinking this is real life after death is real. There really are people who can somehow communicate with our deceased loved ones. Isn't this awesome right now? While I'm making the documentary, I'd been very aware of of skeptics, right? Because I'm a guy of average intelligence. There are people so much smarter than me, who are telling me this is impossible, right? They're so much smarter than I am. And they are saying, no, you have to be getting something wrong here. This this can't be. So people, one of these people, uh, the, the, the performers, Penn and Teller, the magicians, Penn, Penn Gillette, right? He's a very intelligent guy. Penn and Teller are devoutly uh, anti- 
mediumship. They hold real vitriol uh, for anyone who claims this because they believe there is simply no such thing as anything quote unquote paranormal. So it's their belief. And coming from this perspective, I understand it. It's their belief that because there's nothing, no such thing as anything paranormal, anyone who is claiming this ability is lying to you and is preying upon grieving people, right? So they are actually hold a, a whole lot of anger uh, around this this topic. And they were doing a show on Showtime called Bullshit, where they basically exposed mediums and tried to um, uh, explain how some of these people do what they do. But, but, but I'm thinking, well, Penn has not seen what I've seen at this point, though. He, if he had been sitting beside me, as, as this woman said, I smell gasoline, someone died in an explosion, and watching the reaction of the, of the person's face. And of course, I know already, I've heard the story from this person. I know how her brother died. Like, if Penn had been sitting beside me, I'm thinking, Penn, explain that one, right? So I'd been wanting to get Penn to be in the documentary, and I'd spoken with him, and, his, and, and he'd... Uh, tentatively agreed to do that. And he gave, given me the number for his manager and, and all of that. So anyway, as it turned out, while I'm in the middle of these experiments, Penn and Teller decided uh, uh, we're doing a show at the Marquee Theater on Broadway, which is one of the theaters I work for. I work for the Nederlander Theaters. We have eight theaters on Broadway and the Marquee is one of them. And they were going to be doing their show there. And I picked up the playbill one night and found that they were doing their, a bit called, uh, I think it's called the Psychic Magician. And in this bit, they debunk, quote unquote, debunk mediumship, right? And they he starts the 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 bit with this speech about how everything he's about to do is simply a trick because there is no such he gets very serious during this bit. Uh, there is no such thing as anything paranormal. Anyone claiming that, he says it, like it is is a pig or something like he uses very strong language. And they're just evil. He basically says they're evil, anyone who claims this. Everything you're about to see is a trick. And anyone who claims the ability to talk to dead people, um, every, he says everything you're about to see is bullshit. That's verbatim what he says, right? So I'm standing in the back of the theater, and I'm listening to that, and I'm kind of smiling because I'm like, no. If you saw what I saw yesterday, Penn, you'd be you'd have it be singing a different tune, right? But then he does this bit. He and he and uh, Teller do this 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 mind reading trick that is amazing. It's amazing, Liz. I cannot understand how they're doing it. And by the end of the trick, I'm completely crestfallen. I'm in the back of the theater, and it's like it's like all of these little tests I'd been doing with mediums had given me my dad back. And it was like what Penn and Teller had just done took him away again. Were they communicating, quote unquote, with someone who'd passed away? No, because he very clearly says, he says, you know, we're not going to even pretend to be communicating with someone who's dead because we would not do that to you. So we're just going to pretend to read your mind. But anyone who is claiming to talk to dead people is doing exactly what we are about to do right now. Uh, that That's how they frame it. And it is an amazing trick. I... I, to this day, I do not know how they did. I have I have a little more of an inkling now because uh, uh, anyway, it's it's an amazing trick. And I'm in the back of the theater, and it's like they had just taken my dad away from me again. And I'm thinking, well, is there maybe 
Angelina is somehow doing whatever these guys are doing. You know, as hard as that is to believe, you know, the, the, they, they've spent a lifetime rehearsing this and practicing this and, um, and, and honing this, this, uh, this, uh, trick and Angelina, you know, she, she was a, a TV reporter. She had, you know, like a whole life. I, I couldn't, I, it was hard to imagine that she'd had this whole separate secret life where she was like perfecting uh, mentalism and 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 uh, mind reading tricks. But anyway, that's what I'm thinking at the back of the theater. And I walked out of that theater totally distraught, totally distraught. And it was almost like I was back in that pit of despair that I was in right after his passing. And I decided I was going to go back and watch again the next night because I wanted to try to understand how they were doing some of what they were doing. So I go back the next night, which is hard for me to do. I'm like having a hard time walking back into that theater because I'm thinking I, yeah, I don't want to hear this again. I, I really don't. Uh, but I have to, for, for my own scientific purposes, I have to see if I can try to understand what they're doing. And then maybe I can try to understand what Angelina is doing. So he does the whole speech again, verbatim. Every word he's saying is like a, you know, like a dagger in my heart. And then he says, Everything you are about to see is bull. And then he pauses for effect between bull and shit. Everything you're about to see is bull. And right after he says the word bull, Liz, I see about 10 feet above his head, there's this flutter in the lights. And I look up and it's an effing butterfly up in the lights at the Marquee Theater. Now, this butterfly is flapping all around his head. He doesn't know it's up there. But soon, other people in the audience, just so that I know it's not a figment of my imagination, now uh, now it's flying over the audience. And people, there's like a titter in the audience. You know, people are going, oh, ah, because no one ever sees a butterfly in a Broadway theater, right? Ever. I never, ever have. Ever. No, I've worked on Broadway for 17 years now. 17 years. This is, that was the first and at that point, only time, I'll tell you one other thing. Uh, but at that point, it was the first and only time I'd ever seen a butterfly. And not just seen it, Penn is right in the middle of telling me that there's no way my dad could still be alive. There's no way. He's literally saying, everything you're about to see is bullshit. When I see the butterfly. Okay, so it's like my dad was using Penn Gillette's speech, very strong speech against to tell me, no, 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 everything is not bullshit, okay? So so then I go back, <laughs> now I'm the opposite feeling. Now I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this is incredible. I just saw this butterfly. Everyone else in the theater saw this butterfly. So then I go back the next night. I wanted to make uh, to watch the whole show because I wanted to make sure they didn't use like butterflies somewhere in the uh, act and that one had like escaped or something, and they didn't. There was no butterfly anywhere in the act. So this, this was just... 100% mind-blowing, right? So uh, about a week after that, I was back in my theater, the Richard Rogers Theater. No, I should also say, by the way, the Marquee Theater, where I saw this butterfly over Penn's head, it's on the second, uh, the third floor of the Marquee Hotel. So you have to go, it's in the middle of Times Square, right, where there are no trees, and it's very rare to see a butterfly outside, let alone inside. You have to go inside the, the doors, you have to go up an escalator, then you have to go into the, the, the theater doors to get into the theater lobby, and then you have to go into another set to get into the actual theater itself. So this butterfly somehow made its way through all of those obstacles to be over Penn's head as he was saying those words. So a week later, 
I'm standing behind my bar at the theater that I work at, the Richard Rogers, and I'm talking to my bar partner, Marie, and we're behind the bar and and we're talking about that. And I'm I'm saying, I mean, have you ever seen a butterfly in a Broadway theater? I'm I'm saying that to her. And she's saying, you know, because she'd also worked on Broadway for like 10 years at that point. And she said, no, I, I, I don't think I ever have. And while we're having that conversation, I see out of the corner of my eye a flutter and I turn around and lo and behold, there's now a butterfly in our theater as we're having this conversation. I have pictures in my book of this butterfly that landed up in a chandelier and um, I have pictures of people's faces and they're all like looking at it like, is that a butterfly? They're all shocked and they don't know this story. That look of surprise on their faces is just at the fact that there's a butterfly there because none of them had ever, ever seen a butterfly in a Broadway theater before. So when you see their faces of surprise, that has nothing to do with my story. They're just surprised to see a butterfly if they'd only known about the, the context that I was experiencing at that moment. And then a few days after that, Penn and Teller uh, had a night off. Their, they, their show was dark that night and Penn was at Hamilton and he was standing underneath that chandelier where that butterfly landed and he was leaning up against my bar. And I, in that moment, this was another sort of very powerful moment for me as, because as I said, I put so much stock in what skeptics had to say, right? People who who I view as more intelligent than me, you know, I I've always viewed my intelligence or lack thereof as the as the barrier, right? I'm only going to be able to understand up to a certain point that my intellect is going is going to allow me to get to, yeah. And then after that point, I'm I'm in the dark, and after that point, I'm relying on people who are beyond that barrier to to report back to me what it is that they're seeing, right? And I had always viewed someone like Penn as being further than me, uh, down the intellectual pathway, um, and listening to him to report back to me. But in that moment that he was literally, he's now leaning against my bar. I'm standing there. We're, we're, we're two feet from each other. He's a very big guy and I'm looking up at him and, and he's standing under that chandelier where a few days before this butterfly had landed. And in that moment, I got the very strong sense message, uh, signal, I don't know what it was, that it doesn't matter how intelligent a person is. There are some things that you, some people can see and other people can't see. And it has to do with how their brains operate, not necessarily how intelligent they are. And as intelligent as as Penn is and other skeptics might be, their brains may work in a certain way that they're not able to see some things that 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 other people are able to see and like for Penn I would never be able to convince him that that butterfly flapping about over his head as he's saying everything you're about to see is bullshit I'd never be able to to convince him that that was a sign from my father there's no way but for me in that moment as he's leaning against my bar I just had this overwhelming feeling. Now, so there's nothing scientific about this at all. This is just an overwhelming feeling emanating from my chest that I don't need him to tell me this anymore. I just don't need it. I I now had a sense, a some sort of a deep sense that there there are things that are unexplainable and um it doesn't matter how many people tell me they are explainable if if I truly believe they're not. And so so that's where uh that's where that story led. I love that and relate 
So one question, I just want to back up a little bit. You said you now have an inkling of how Penn and Teller are doing this. What is your inkling? Uh, Yeah, I won't give anything away because of, you know, codes of magic and all of that stuff. But uh, I I did a little more research about that particular trick that they do. And it is a great trick, so I don't want to give away anything. But uh, yeah, it has to do with math. And um, uh, and force, you know, the idea of forcing in magic where you force a card or, you, you, you know, you basically force a person to choose something without them realizing you forced that choice on them. It has to do with that. It's, it's an amazing. It's a great trick. It's, it's really great. But it is, it is a trick. And it is not what Angelina is doing. That I can say for sure. It's not. I've gone and seen mentalists. I know we have together. We went and yeah. saw um, Darren Brown, who's amazing. Oh, my God. And... One of the coolest shows I've ever seen, but the tricks that he is doing is not at all what I know you and I, I know we talked about it right after we were relieved because we were going in scared mm-hmm. and we realized after this is not at all mediumship. Yeah, it it, it is. It is scary because because they are amazing. Like Darren Brown, that guy. That last trick that he did, remember? I mean, how in the, I still have no idea, no idea how, how he did it. Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash clubcare programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Why do you think, though, that the skeptics and mainstream scientists are dismissing this? Because my thoughts are the same. I, my immediate thought when I first started reading Winbridge, I was like, if there wasn't a catch, there, there's no way there isn't a catch because otherwise all of science would just be stopping everything to examine this, but they're not. And there isn't a catch. And that has changed a lot of my worldview. Why do you think the skeptics and scientists aren't stopping everything if this is as good and genuine as you and I have come to conclude? I think it has to do with cognitive dissonance. This is something I talked with Jim Tucker a lot about. Have you had him on your podcast? I have not. I've emailed him and I haven't heard back. So if you know him, tell him to get on my podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's the head of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. Uh, he does remarkable research into children with memories from lives that appear to not be their own. Uh, and I interviewed him for the documentary that I'd been working on. And I asked him that very question because the evidence that they have at DOPS is so profoundly and Dobbs is division of perceptual studies at the university of Virginia. Yes. Sorry. Division of perceptual studies. Yeah. Uh, the, the evidence that they have gathered there for over 60 years now is so powerful in my opinion, in my view that anyone who goes there and takes an honest look at it 
would have to come away concluding, okay, it seems some kids are having memories that are not their own, right? Like that's how strong the evidence is. They have thousands of cases and some of them meticulously researched. Anyway, so I ask him, why is it then that this is not on the nightly news? If this evidence is so strong, so clear, it's it's it's, it's like as clear as the evidence for like uh, uh, smoking being bad for your lungs. Like that's how clear the evidence is. Why isn't this on the nightly news? And his answer to me was that, well, it, most scientists simply are not even aware that this evidence exists. They just simply aren't looking at it. And I think that's the basic answer, um, that things of this nature that are beyond the the boundaries that, that we've set up as being, quote unquote, respectable science – uh, for for a lot of scientists, it's it's dangerous for them as far as their careers go to to, to look at this stuff. The way that our current systems of of science go, you know, we rely on on money often in like the university system. We rely on 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 money, and if if a university gets a gets wind that one of their professors, for instance, is doing research into anything that could be considered to be less than reputable science, that person's job could be in jeopardy, right? That and and just cognitive dissonance, right? Which is uh, something else I talked with Dr. Tucker and, and other psychi- psychologists about. The cognitive dissonance is just the idea that when the brain is very good at dismissing anything that is going to disrupt its worldview, <laughs> right? If you, if you have a sense of how the world operates and you're comfortable in that sense, of course, we like to be comfortable. If information comes in, that is going to make us uncomfortable. The brain is just really good at letting it go by as though it had never even heard it. You know what I mean? Because that's too much to, to, to think about. So as simple of an explanation as that is, I, I think that that is a part of it as well. That another part of this might be that a lot of scientists, you know, you spend your life, you spend your mental energy, your time on, on studying something, right? And it takes a ton of work to 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 get to to where you are, to get to the understanding that you've gotten to. If information comes in that entirely disrupts the foundations of what you've understood to be the truth, and now you realize, oh my God, I'm like back at square one, all of that work basically just fell apart, you know, that... And our and our identities can also become entwined with what we spend our time and our thoughts on. So a lot of very, very smart people, part of their identity, I think, could be mixed in with what they're studying and what their ideas are about what they're studying. And so anyway, there are all kinds of psychological aspects. The fact is, there is incredible evidence out there. As I said to you earlier, I thought that if what John Edward was doing was real, certainly scientists would have studied it by now. As it turned out, they'd been studying it for over 100 years. The Society for Psychical Research, both the British and the American versions, William James, one of the smartest scientists of all times, like brilliant people, Charles Roche, a, a, a Nobel Prize winning physiologist, brilliant people have studied this and have concluded time and time and time again that there is something going on uh, that we can't explain. It's just that we forget or it's like we're constantly going back to square one, like we're retreading old ground that other scientists have tread in the past. I've also noticed every time a mainstream scientist does go study it, they're no longer considered mainstream scientists. Exactly, exactly. What would you say is the biggest what the fuck you've seen maybe that hasn't been mentioned in your book 
that you've experienced since that time? Or what would you say is the most compelling, mind-blowing, any of it related to afterlife evidence? Well, the most compelling is is in my book. And I almost didn't include it in the book because it was so 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 crazy that I worried because my book is written in a very sort of logical methodical way and uh, I was worried that you'd get to that last chapter and where I write about what I ended up experiencing and then think oh well turns out this guy's just nuts but it was the truth it is what happened so I did include it in the book and so this is the thing yeah there's uh, so we've been talking about mental mediumship right which is the mediumship that most of us are familiar with John Edward and and, and so on a Laura Lynn Jackson that I know you know and Angelina. There's another form of mediumship called physical mediumship. In this, this is more more rare. In this form of mediumship, the 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 medium goes into what we would call a trance. Uh, at least this is what they claim, where they are no longer conscious of what is going on. So when Angelina does what she does, she is in at least a semi-conscious state. She she's she's walking and talking and and hearing or seeing or feeling things and then trying to interpret these messages and then using her own voice to to, to deliver these messages. She's being, as she says, a, a microphone for the other side by interpreting these things that she's experiencing. In the case of physical mediumship, the claim is that the, the medium goes into an, a completely altered state of consciousness where they are no longer aware of what's going on in the room. And then the quote unquote spirit world uses the medium's physical apparatus in various ways to communicate. I guess the the simplest form of that communication uh, would be where the the spirit folks uh, use the the uh, medium's vocal cords to speak uh, in their own words. So this was something that I read about with Le- in Leslie's Leslie Kane's book Surviving Death. And Leslie has become Mike's mentor. He's like Fran and Bob in my life is Leslie to Mike. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Leslie Kane is very smart, logical. So I know what you're going to say. And this is the thing I can't wrap my mind around. I'm still stuck in it the way I was like mediumship, mental mediumship the first day I read about it. So everyone prepare yourself. This is the best story ever. This is, yeah, this was a life changing to say the least paradigm shifting. It was actually shattering when it happened. It was like, it was psychologically shattering in, in a good way, but it was it was a lot. So anyway, Leslie Kane, yeah, who is now now one of my best friends. I happened upon, upon her book in a Barnes and Noble. I won't get into that whole story now, but there are a whole bunch of synchronicities around that as well. I'm reading her book. And by that point in my research, I had learned already most of what she was writing about. You know, I'd already run into most of those topics. This is her, this is surviving death. So she covers things, you know, like near-death experiences, children who remember, who remember past lives, after-death communications, uh, the, these topics that anyone who ends up researching life after death like you and I have, uh, have uh, you know, run into. So most of that stuff in her book, I, it's a great book, and I, I read through it in one day. And then I get to the last couple of chapters, which are about physical mediumship. And it describes this phenomenon, and I'm thinking... If it were anyone but Leslie Kane, whose work as a journalist, she's a she's an investigative journalist, uh, and I trusted her work. She's so smart. She'd written a book earlier about UFOs that w- is a New York Times bestseller, and um, you know she's just such a smart woman and such a meticulous researcher that 
if it, if it were anyone but her, I would think there's no way this can be true. So anyway, she writes about this guy named Stuart Alexander in this, the last two chapters of this book, uh, who's this physical medium who sits in the dark once a week, every Monday, and then the spirit world in this little room takes over his body and does all kinds of phenomenal stuff in this room, including uh, the the use of ectoplasm which is a substance that somehow comes out of Stuart's body and then the spirit world uses it to manifest physically there in the room. Now, ectoplasm, I was 100% sure is a word was a word invented by Ghostbusters. I was 100% sure that's where the word ectoplasm came from. As it turns out it's not. Uh, it's been studied by by people for over 100 years, including as we mentioned Charles Richet, a uh, Nobel Prize winning physiologist. And Leslie describes in, in, in these cases, it's this, it can take on different forms, this substance. It can be kind of smoky. Uh, it can be kind of liquidy. It's, it's, it's very difficult to describe the actual nature. It can be, it can look like silk sometimes, she said. So she goes to see this guy, Stuart, after a great deal of work, because he's a very, very private person. And he allows her to come and sit. And she describes what she experienced. She experienced this substance coming up over this little table that she was sitting by and then congealing into two digits of a hand and then a full hand that then banged on the table to show how solid it was and then grabbed her hand and shook it. And she said she could feel the bones in it. It was like a full human hand. And then she said she let it go and then it dissolved back into nothing. So that was that was probably the most spectacular of the multiple claims um, that she made that she saw in that room that night. So I, I, anyway, I finished the book and I'm like, oh my god, what I would do to be able to experience that, you know? But I thought there's obviously no way this guy is incredibly private. There's just no way to do it. Uh, I won't get into the whole story. I'll just say that less than a year after finding that book, less than a year, Liz, I was sitting beside Leslie Kane in that same room with Stuart Alexander about to have a seance. And with my own eyes, I watched from five inches away because I asked, I wanted to throw like a monkey wrench in. I was like, can I kneel by this table? Uh, and they said, sure, you can do that. So I ended up leaving my seat, coming down to the table, kneeling beside it. And I'm, I'm literally five inches from this. And I watch a substance that is impossible to describe the the way that this moved, the fluid the the fluid nature with which this stuff moved is just impossible to describe. But it came up over this table. It was about a, a foot and a half or two feet of stuff that it took. Oh, it was like over the entire surface of the table at first. And then it came together. It started to come together in the center of the table. And again, I'm five inches from this. And then I see a hand form out of this smoky, liquidy like substance, right? And then just like she described in the book, it makes a fist and then it bangs on the table very loudly to show everyone that this is a solid thing. I watch it now grab Leslie's hand, okay? And she's shaking the hand. And then I'm leaning down like this. So I'm seeing a hand floating in the air, connected to nothing. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing over here. It's just a, a disembodied hand shaking Leslie's. And then she lets go and it goes back down on the table and then it dissolves 
and slips away into nothing. And, uh, you know, in that moment, uh, as I've talked about before, you know, I, I, for, for a long time, if somebody had a whole bunch of degrees up on the shelf behind them, I was inclined to uh, respect what they had to say. After seeing this, it now does not matter to me how many degrees, how many PhDs a person has. If they say to you, there is no such thing as anything, quote unquote, paranormal, they do not know the whole story. <laughs> they have not seen everything that there is to see. They have not sat in this little room in England on a Monday night and watched, which I've now watched this happen many times, a hand form, a human hand, a full, huge human hand form out of smoke uh, and then dissolve back into it and disappear. My dream like yours is to go get to see it one day too. And I know that's a hard thing, but you, I trust you. I trust Leslie, but my mind still goes to, this has to be a magic trick, but you were there. Leslie was there and both of you hearing this like me would think this has to be a mm -hmm. magic trick and this is me stuck in the cognitive dissonance i think this is the right way to use cognitive mm -hmm. dissonance i trust you i trust leslie and everything i know about Stuart alexander i trust completely opposite of the quote-unquote physical medium i saw that i cover in my book <laughs> hi pickles <laughs> everyone say hi to pickles that's the um, famous pickles <laughs> no oh, peanuts oh that's peanut. okay got it, got it. Pickles is her predecessor, so <laughs> trying to be famous by scaring and chasing dogs, hoping page six comes for him. So, <laughs> yeah, everyone knows the Harvey Weinstein story. I'll probably just stick it in now just so people hear it because people are hearing this and like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? So what Mike is referencing right now is kind of a really crazy story and crazy in a different way than afterlife evidency stuff. So bit of a trigger warning, sexual assault is touched upon here. And one of my friends, unfortunately, was sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. I ended up testifying and it included a part where my chihuahua mix, who is now on the other side, Peanut, ended up chasing Harvey Weinstein and he was terrified. So that ended up going viral. So somehow my little chihuahua mix, who was the sweetest thing and the silliest thing you've ever met, is now famous for having chased Harvey Weinstein. All of this is going to be in my second book, which will be coming out after the new year at some point. So yeah, Pickles is trying to be famous, like Peanut, and not doing a very good job. So... Yeah, and I can also say that is not even the weirdest story of my life, and it would be by far the weirdest story of my life if I had not gotten involved in afterlife research. So th this is where my cognitive distance is. Uh, th this is not possible. I've seen so much this isn't possible, but this is the next level of this is not possible. But you and Leslie must have had those same thoughts and then saw it and experienced it and touched it. And there's no magic trick that you could see that this could be done. I had the very same thought that you had. Like I trusted Leslie completely, but reading her book, I'm thinking, God, she must have been fooled in, in some way. I mean, I believe that she's telling the truth, but they've got to have, they must have fooled her. And so this can't be real. Again, it just can't be, or, or someone would have studied it. So I should also say, you know, being who I am, I wanted to really 
really uh, study study these people. So I went for a week and lived lived in in this uh, you know spent every second that I could with Stuart at his house and his, with his family and with his friends, and I got to know them really well before the sitting happened. And I wanted to see if I could detect any any sign of deceit or anything like that. And there was simply nothing. There was there just. We, you know, we had dinners together. We talked about their family. His, He and his wife have been together since they were like 14 years old, you know, that sort of a couple. They met when they were like in middle school. They have these beautiful children and grandchildren. His grandchildren are his whole life. I could just detect nothing but a good person who stumbled upon this extraordinary ability. Uh, that's another story, which he writes beautifully in his own book about how he came to discover his own ability. Um, and he's so secretive about it. Even if his, even his adult children didn't know about it until Leslie finally got him to agree to let her write about him in, in her book. This is a man who wanted the opposite of publicity because he has like a, he was a very successful business person. He wanted no one in his life other than the friends that he had these sittings with to know what he was doing. Cause he thought it would sound way too weird to them and it would be detrimental to his professional life. So he didn't even tell his adult children what was going on for all of these years. So yeah, it, it is not a magic trick. That's all that I can say because watching it from the, uh, vantage points that I have. And I've now seen it happen in, in multiple different rooms, different places, some of which are not his places, you know? So it's, it's, uh, if he's doing a magic trick, he's somehow uh, taking this show on the road to other people's houses and things and uh, without any time to set anything up. And also the table that this is done on, it's this tiny little rickety, I, I mean, it's the most humble, beautiful little home that they do this in. Leslie and I were allowed, of course, to investigate the, you know, so I'm like banging on floors, the doors, like trying to see, could there be any sort of a secret hatchway or something? And there's just absolutely nothing. And once you meet these people, you realize it's absurd to even think that because they would be fooling themselves. Most of the time, it's the same like five people, these friends who've gotten together for at this point, 40 years with no publicity, no money is ever exchanged. These are just four friends who get together once a week to sit in the dark and talk to dead people. Once you once you realize who they are and how they live, you realize like it just it would be they they'd have to be either a hundred percent complete sociopaths, fooling themselves even, or it's just something real that happens, and it's real. There is no magic trick here. There there is magic because. Uh, you know, if we just call magic things that we don't yet understand about the universe, that is real. But having watched it from the vantage points that I have, including from five inches away, no, it is definitely not a magic trick. Definitely not. Because when I saw that, like Stuart is sitting over here, Leslie's here, the table's in between them, and I'm over the table. So I have, I have Stuart on my right, Leslie on my, like, I can see Stuart's legs here. You know, it is not a magic trick that, that, that I can say. And you see Stuart the whole time because the medium, the physical medium, I mean, I figured out within five minutes it was fake, but I couldn't see him during the seance. He went behind curtains that are called a cabinet, but you could watch Stuart the whole time. For most physical mediums, it takes place in the pitch black dark, which of course is a huge red flag. Um, I now understand though why this seems to be necessary and uh, there's a lot to the whole thing. But yeah, in Stuart's case, he's developed far enough that a lot of what he is able to do is done in the light. So like, or a, a dim red light. Red is the lowest energy visible wavelength. And according to 
physical mediums, uh, ectoplasm is very sensitive to light. And it's like film developing, film can only develop in a, in a dark room, right? It's, they say the process has is somehow similar to that, that light is just uh, detrimental. Now, there have been physical mediums like a guy named Alec Harris. Uh, and I have pictures in my book of uh, a woman named Minnie Harrison who was so developed that her people, her spirit people were able to form in, in, in light, in full, full white light. And I have a picture of what I now believe is a fully materialized form. And it's hard to believe when you look at that picture, you think, no, that's a woman in a sheet. There's no way. But I now know a lot of the people who are involved, involved with that circle. And I a hundred percent believe that they are genuine and that that photo is real. That is a real photo of an ectoplasmic form. So with Stuart, yeah, he's able to, for instance, when you see the hand form, uh, there's a red light under the table. So you're, you're seeing it with your eyes. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're seeing this thing. I saw this, the, the fluid movement of this stuff. Uh, and Stuart is sitting over here and he keeps like illuminated tabs on his knees so you can see where his legs are. He's strapped in, uh, his arms are strapped in, his legs are strapped in. And of course, you're able to test all of this stuff. Believe me, we uh, Leslie and I have tested everything possible. He, Stuart is the real deal. Now, I've also sat with mediums that I am very skeptical about physical mediums that I'm very skeptical about. And, and we've caught many physical mediums uh, lying in the past. So again, I, I'm not here to say that all people who claim this ability are, 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 are actually doing what they claim to be doing. And of course, there, there are frauds out there and there continue to be, sadly. But just because some people fake this stuff obviously does not mean everybody fakes the stuff. And I can tell you, not everybody fakes the stuff. Stuart Alexander is the, is the real deal. This is the perfect entree into UFOs. Leslie has also studied UFOs and I'm not as educated about UFOs. So I don't, I'm not going to have the same level of questions. I almost don't even know where to begin. So tell me, tell me something. <laughs> well, man. Yeah. So I'll tell you this. When I was in high school, I co-founded the Phenomenology Club which made me very popular, as you can imagine. Every Wednesday after school, me and a group of my friends would get together again with Mr. Sawyer. He was the, um, he was the, the, the teacher who was there. And we would talk about Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts and, and you know, anything to do with paranormal you know, activity. So I have, that's just to say that I've long been interested because of Mr. Sawyer. Mr. Sawyer, who, who was the one who I told you, you know, told us about Bernoulli's principle, but he was also very much aware of the things that science couldn't yet explain. And he was fascinated by those things that science couldn't yet explain. And so things like, it, could it be Bigfoot? Could that be real? Could there be this, you know, and UFOs was one of the topics we covered. And so I've just long been fascinated. And it seemed to me way back then that there is just so much videographic and photographic evidence that it seems like something real might be going on. And of course, this is back in the day. Uh, I know it's going to be hard for you to believe this, Liz, but I'm 46. And back when I was uh, the co-founder of the Phenomenology Club, you know, there was not any Photoshop. The, the, the idea of like faking videos and um, photographs was much less of an issue than it is now. Now you can see something and who knows if it's genuine or, uh, and especially now with AI, I mean, it's basically impossible to say whether or not something was actually captured or not. 
but back way back then, it, it, it was less, uh, m- much more rare, or it took a lot more doing, I should say, to to fake things. It took a lot more effort. You had to double expose, and you know all of this stuff. Anyway, there were so many videos and, and photographs that I just thought it seems to me like there's got to be something to this. But and then if my if my 15 year old phenomenology self could know that one day I'd be best friends with Leslie Kane, if you could have told him that, oh, that that would have blown blown his mind for sure. So, for people who don't know, Leslie wrote the book UFOs, uh, pilots, generals uh, go on the record, which is a huge bestseller, and she was the woman who co-authored with Ralph Blumenthal and Helene Cooper the 2017 New York Times article which was at the time, I think still actually, the most uh, widely shared article ever published on the New York Times website that exposed the Pentagon's recent UFO program. Uh, it was a $22 million program that was investigating, uh, it was called ATIP, the uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. It was uh Harry Reid, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time, it was the person who was responsible for establishing this. Anyway, the point was, it was a, a legit government program where a guy named Lou Elizondo, who he, he was the head of it, and they claimed to have uh, videographic evidence from highly sophisticated sensors of something behaving in a way that our current physics would say is impossible. And so she broke that story in 2017, and things have just uh, snowballed and continued to move forward since then. And uh, although not not, not not as much as I thought, like I remember, because I'd been friends with Leslie already by the time she was getting ready to publish that article, so I knew it was coming. And by the time she published it, I was like, okay, I'm like looking around like, is there going to be like people out in the streets? Like what's going to happen? And then it was like nothing, like not much happened, you know? And then not long after that, they they published another article where they talked about a crash retrieval program, a government crash retrieval program where the implication was we have a program to recover craft made by non-human intelligences. And that was published in the New York Times, right? The paper of record. And again, it seemed like it got very little play uh, out in the streets. You know, people were not like up in arms about it. Fast forward uh, last year, we had a, a, a congressional hearing about it. We had another one a week ago or two weeks ago. And more is coming down the pike because we've, in the National Defense Authorization Act last year, there was a language for that that protects whistleblowers, uh, people who claim that they've been involved in research programs through working for the United States government or or through uh, contractors, working with material that is not human, craft, basically. And so these whistleblowers um, have been talking to Congress. There's a group, a group now called ARO, which is the All Domain. These acronyms are ridiculous, but uh, this is the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. It's ARO, yeah, A R R O, the All uh, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. All Domain meaning air, sea, space, wherever we might capture an anomaly, their object is to resolve that and try to get to the bottom of what it was. 
Uh, so we have these whistleblowers who are talking to this office as well as directly to Congress, apparently. And the word on the street is that information might be forthcoming fairly soon. Uh, What people keep saying is months, not years. Some people claiming by the end of this summer that will basically put an end to the debate of whether or not there is such a thing as a non-human intelligence interacting with this planet. Now, would this be interdimensional or would it just be, I mean, there's no doubt that there's life on other planets. There's multiple galaxies, solar systems, other Goldilocks planets, nothing. You don't need to be that into anything that's considered out there, unexpected to think that there most likely is intelligent life on other planets. So is this any different than like a species we might not see here that's also intelligent that just evolved a little differently than us to be not so different than humans? Or is it something more than that? I think that's an open question for at least most of us. Some people would say that there are people who have more answers on this that have not been publicly shared. Yeah, a lot of this is difficult to talk about only because there are national security implications is the is is the idea i think so there are multiple things so for instance if we did have a craft that was super advanced that was made by some form of intelligence that's not human advanced much more much more intelligent than humans are now you mentioned could this be like interdimensional yeah i mean who know we we we're only now you know, we don't like our alternate dimensions, actually real things like string theory would posit that there have to be, I think like 12 or 14 or something like that. Other dimensions. I mean, these are things that are at the very boundaries of, of science right now. Right. But so could it, could they be interdimensional? Uh, whatever that might exactly mean. Yes. The idea that they could, that, as you said, there, this, this universe, right. It's 15.4, I think billion years old. It's, so many light years big that we cannot even begin to fathom it. So for sure, there's life all over the place, for sure. The question is, could it possibly get here over these fast distances? Well, if they've d- just figured out how to manipulate space-time and bend things, then then who knows what's possible. So anyway, if we did have a crap, if we did have a piece of, of technology, let's say, that was super advanced, given who, humans' history... We know that, unfortunately, we're not as evolved as we wish we were in a lot of ways. And our tendency is, of course, to weaponize, right? Um, that's that's always, unfortunately, the first instinct, it seems, uh, of the military is to take a thing and, and see how can we weaponize this thing, right? Uh, people were using LSD, uh, uh, like in the, in the counterculture, to try to open up their minds and um, experience expanded consciousness and then the military immediately says well what, how can we use this as a weapon you know sadly that's a real tendency right a human tendency so you could imagine that if you were in a position where you had access or knowledge that we had something i would i could understand being very very worried about that technology getting into the wrong hands because if it could be weaponized, uh, the idea is that whoever uh, could crack could crack this tech uh, would could rule the, the the world right with it. So, so there's that. There's also, I think, the worry that this this would be for a lot of people 
you know, we talked about how paradigm shifting it is to experience mediumship in in a profound way, right? Or to see a physical medium produce a hand uh, out of thin air. That is that is paradigm shifting. And when I saw that happen with my own eyes, I had a moment where, I mean, it was really kind of shattering. I was like, oh my God, everything I thought was true is not necessarily true. And like, I'm like sort of starting over from square one here. And it's just a lot. And I think if if the government were to come out tomorrow and say, yes, we have evidence that humans are not, only are we not alone, uh, but we're not even close to the top of the intellectual food chain. I think that might be hard for a lot of us to to take. You know, we have a history of thinking we are the center of the universe, right? I mean, when Galileo tried to say, hey, it looks to me like we might be going around the sun, you know, they put him under house arrest. Like they didn't even want to look into the telescope as the as of course the 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 story goes, because we were so used to the idea and liked the idea that we were the center of quote unquote God's universe. And we have a long history of, of course, we anthropomorphize everything, right? I mean, that's just natural, it seems. And so for the idea that that we not only are we not the center of the universe, but we may be way down on our low, low rung of the ladder as far as intelligence goes. For for a lot of us, that that could be difficult to hear, I think. So I think there's a worry about societal upset. You know, for a lot of people, this will have religious implications for sure. If we were to be told unequivocally that we're that we're not alone in the in the universe, there is some form of intelligence that's not human. What would that mean for a lot of religious, you know, a lot of believers? You know, there's always economic concerns, of course. As we saw, what you know, COVID happened, and immediately we ran out of toilet paper. So there's obviously always worry about how we're going to just how people will react to 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 a thing like this but there's a lot going on it seems to me uh behind the scenes of course leslie knows a lot obviously a lot more than i do and uh her her sources are people who know what they're talking about and and i i uh, totally trust her vetting of those people and, and and yeah and a lot of them again are right now talking publicly to to uh, reporters and to Congress. And, um, you know, the information is out there for the people who want to go look for it. It just seems to me that uh, a lot of people are not wholly interested in looking for it, and which I understand. It's, it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to think about. And these are people in the intelligence department. I know you can't go into which branches, but these are not the guy next door who keeps talking about this. Oh yeah, I mean the guy who sort of started this most recent round of disclosures was is Lou Elizondo, and Harry Reid uh, wrote a letter saying yes, Lou is who he says he is. He was the head of ATIP, which again was the Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program, and Lou is the one who he then resigned because Lou was seeing so much information that he thought the public deserved to know. Uh, he thinks that there's a way that we could let some of this information out while maintaining national security, right? Like he, he agrees that there are certainly maybe some technologies that we would want to be very careful about how we handle. He thinks it's amoral if there is evidence that more fully completes the contextual picture of where humans are in the universe. He feels that it's basically immoral to not share that information. And so when not enough was being done, he resigned from ATIP 
and brought this story to Leslie, basically, is how how it happened. So that kicked this off. But th- so that's all very public information. Lou Elizondo and, uh, you know, yeah, you can any, anyone can Google this and and uh, find out who he is and his name and everything. And yeah, the other people, you know, who are involved are um, that Leslie knows are definitely not just her neighbor next door. Yeah, <laughs> they are people with with security clearances. They're scientists, members of of the intelligence community. There's there's a lot of uh, information that is again currently public. There's a lot that I think might be made more public in in the coming. Again, what we what I keep hearing is months, not years. So it could be that a year from now we're we're living in a much different paradigm, and it, it'll be very interesting. I mean, once uh, once the question of UFOs is sort of accepted as not something that's fringe. Uh, but but real, then that opens up all kinds of things, right? Including our our investigations into consciousness, and because because there there appears to be a connection with consciousness and and, and UFOs. Sometimes, uh, for instance, sometimes an event will occur involving a quote unquote UFO, and multiple people will witness the event, but each of them, when they're asked to describe what happened will describe something else, seeing something else. They might have a different experience of the time that passed during it. It seems that the consciousness of the of the individual experiencing the thing might affect what they saw. So um, it just opens up a whole, a whole lot of questions, which I'm all for, because I, I feel like I've been on this little boat for a long time. Like since, again, I was that 15-year-old kid going, Ma, I just saw this video today. I really think UFOs are real. And they were like, what? Come on. You know what I mean? So I feel like I've been on on this little boat with my couple of other weirdo friends saying, hey, guys, look at this. Look at this. And and, and finally, I feel like our boat's about to get a little bigger and we're going to take on some more passengers. And I, my hope is that it ends up, it might, it's, it might be scary and, and unsettling for, for people, especially at first. But my hope is that um, it, 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 ultimately just opens opens us our minds and our hearts in some way. Yeah, that's that, that's my hope. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. This week's listener question was submitted by Lauren G. She asked, what is one book that changed your mind the most about afterlife evidence? That is really hard to say one book. For me, it was really an accumulation of everything and just so much phenomena, so much data, so much evidence, and so many intelligent, logical-minded, scientific people writing books on everything from NDEs to data on mediumship readings. In one sense, I might say the two books by Dr. Jim Tucker, but that was only because they were the first books I found. So I really can't recommend one over all of the others. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. 
Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Anthony as much as I did. You can find Mike at MikeAnthony.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at MikeAnthony91. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to WTFJustHappened.net. There you can order my book, what the fuck just happened? A sciency skeptic explores grief, healing, and evidence of an afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened dot net. And remember, 
You don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.